Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, it's a great episode. I have new friends for you. Help me welcome Hajar Yazdiha. Hajar Yazdiha is an assistant professor of sociology, faculty affiliate of the Equity Research Institute. Her research examines the mechanisms underlying the politics of inclusion and exclusion as they shape ethno-racial identities, intergroup relations, and political culture. She's the author of the new book, The Struggles for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. Through her research, Dr. Yazdiha works to understand how systems of inequality become entrenched and how groups develop strategies to resist, contest, and manifest alternative futures. Also welcome new friend, Noor Jihan Torek. Noor Jihan unexpectedly made it to the semifinals of the 2022 Sports Illustrated Swim Search Competition. The experience helped her realize that her childhood dream was not only to be a cover model, but also a role model. One who empowers ladies to show the world every side, from every angle, unapologetically. After being a Sports Illustrated semifinalist, Norjihan made it her mission to get women excited about the prospect of falling on their faces over and over, if it means they are making their one life on this earth count. It's a great episode to share with a friend, and the sound is definitely better. I want to apologize for last week's episode. We were trying out a new platform. We're trying out some new things. And so I apologize. It's the first time in over, what, 10 years that an episode has been a bit glitchy. So my bad. What can I say? We fixed it. And this week is great. See me live October 5th in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, Soul Joe's Comedy Club and October 15th in Boston, yes, at the Silent Spring Institute annual gala celebration. I am hosting the Silent Spring Institute's annual gala celebration in Boston. Go to marinafranklin.com for tickets. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast. And Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. Special shout out to our Patreon friends. It's because of you we keep going. Now for our golden friends, you have the option to watch our recordings live backstage. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us and be golden. Merch is available. We have t-shirts. We have hoodies. It's hoodie season again. Coffee mugs, face masks, and tank tops. They're all available. Go to marinafranklin.com. Saturdays on my YouTube channel, I go live with my friend Evelyn Frick and that wacky Dave Juskow. We give updates to the show, shout out fans who leave reviews, and we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by. And sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. With friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out, stay safe, wash those dirty little hands, be nice, and Black Lives Matter. I have some new friends, and I'm going to get it right. I've got Hajj and Noor Jahan. Woohoo, both amazing women. I can't wait for you to hear their bio. Yes! <laughs> 
<laughs> Loved it. Like, please don't mess it up. I was like, my God, Marina. <laughs> but yes, I am. I'm meeting both of you at the first. And you're both so amazing. So this is going to be interesting because I'm going to try to get in like sort of a mini interview with both of you at the same time. But you were both talking before we even started. And I, I just want to ask you both, like, did you find something in common? How did you like you, you both seem to connect right away? It was just a vibe. It, we just hopped on. It was a vibe. Totally. It's the space you created. But you, I jumped on and Hodge was already on and it was totally her energy. Like I got on, she was excited. I felt like we've known each other forever. Like she's like, hey, and then it just, just the vibes just started. Yeah, I never, that never happens. <laughs> so I was like, both of you ladies are amazing. It's like we're friends, fast track to friends. Besties. So both of you are Let's see, let's see, where do I start? That's that's my <laughs> problem. It's like you're both amazing. So I'm gonna start with you, Haj. And how do I say your last name? Yaz Yazda? Yazdiha. Yazdiha. Ha, so your full name is Hajar Yazdiha, but you prefer to be called Haj. And even though you are a professor, we professor Haj. Um and you are. You recently wrote a book about the struggle for the people's king, how politics transforms the memory of the civil rights movement. Princeton University Press. Ooh. I tried. I tried. <laughs> so tell me, like, what inspired you to write this and do all of this research that you have done for the book? For this, it's a book. It's not a documentary, right? right? It's a I'm, book. I'm like, I'm, let's okay. manifest. It should be a documentary. But, okay. Yes. <laughs> I had to double check because I was like, let me not just start rambling. So for me, it was like, if you think about this moment that we just all engaged in where affirmative action got repealed and it happened in the shadiest of ways where it was with the Supreme Court that had been stacked in all kinds of ways that felt anti-democratic, Right. Then I'm going to take you back like 10 years before that moment, which is when Abigail Fisher, who I don't know if we all recall, was like this young white woman. She got rejected from the University of Texas at Austin, and she took affirmative action to the Supreme Court because she was like, it's racist against white people. And in all of these sorts of cases, you see Dr. King's words getting invoked where they're like, Martin Luther King would be against affirmative action because he believed we were colorblind. And if we pay attention to race and university admissions, it's going to be racist for white people. So basically like turning Dr. King's words on their head to repeal affirmative action. And for me, I'm like sitting in grad school, I'm watching this all play out. And then the news comes out that Abigail Fisher is like, a completely basic, mediocre student. So she wasn't even like this amazing student where you kind of think twice about like, well, would she have been accepted if she were black or brown? No, she was totally mediocre. So just the fact that this case was like, to me, I would say it was egregious because you're just like, this is the most extreme of cases. And we're using Dr. King's words to justify this. And that's when I started doing the research because I was a sociology PhD student was working on a dissertation, thinking about race and social movements, and come to find out that this is a strategy that's been playing out for like 40 years. And so that's where the story really began, where I was like, oh, using Dr. King's words against the causes that he fought for is not actually a new thing that happens like in the wake of the anti-Obama backlash. This is something that's been happening for a really long time, and it actually has all of these consequences. 
So that's really where the project started. I love it. And then you also say in that as a child, as an immigrant, right? It inspired your your interest in the civil rights movement. Can you talk to that as yeah, well? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the questions, right? Like, I'm the daughter of Iranian immigrants. I wasn't even born in the United States. I was born in Germany. Uh, we were political refugees. And so there's this question of like, well, how did this brown girl come to think about Martin Luther King and write like a whole ass dissertation on the civil rights movement? Like, it kind of doesn't track. For me, it was all about the fact that it was learning Dr. King's speech, which is the speech we all learn, right? The I have a dream speech. They show it in school. I remember feeling chills because it, it struck me in a way that I think nothing really had before in school where it wasn't just like a dusty old textbook. There was something deeper about his speech that resonated with how I was feeling as like one of the only brown students in this very white community in Northern Virginia. And, you know, like every child of immigrants has these stories about like, their name being made fun of. I had more body hair than the average white girl with like blonde hair. You know, they used to call me Harry Hadar. So just, right? Yeah, Nora's raising her hand. So, I mean, I think um, that was for me one of the things that stood out where I was like, this is giving me a lens for understanding my own experience as an immigrant in the United States. And then as I proceeded and like went to college and started learning these histories of black thought, like reading Du Bois and Baldwin and Audre Lorde, I was like, this is the lens for making sense of who we are, not just as black or white Americans as all of us, because like that racial hierarchy shapes every single one of us in the United States. So it seemed to me that understanding how the civil rights memory gets co-opted, how Dr. King's words get misused. All of this tells us something about who we are in this moment right now in society. Noor Jahan, I see that you were relating to what Haj was saying. Do you want to, because I know I was also looking at your story about feeling, you know, not uh, fitting in. So did you hear something in there that you can relate to? Yeah, growing up hairy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, me too. No, me no. too. <laughs> um, no, I, it's it's just really interesting hearing Hodge talk about um, a, a brown child of immigrants and identifying with the Black Civil Rights Movement because I keep going back to what's happening in India. Like my my family's from India. We're, we're um, my parents are Indian immigrants. Um, religiously we are we my family practices islam so we're indian muslims and in america that's actually considered a minority and um we are seeing india going through a very nationalistic movement right now and it's not really talked a lot about other than when modi came here and visited the united states and it got a lot of media press of what is happening in india under the rule of prime minister modi but the thing is, is if you actually go back and analyze it, and I'm not the person to do it because I don't have as much education or research on it, but Indians in India and here as well, growing up, I would remember in Southern California, seem to align and identify more with whites than they did with the, the blacks and the Hispanics. And I'm seeing that play out on the stage when I see the nationalistic movement of there have been arguments made about the parallels between Modi and Trump 
and what they're doing and the movements they're making in their countries for that nationalistic thinking. So it's just really interesting to hear Hodge talk because um, growing up, I think Indian kids would tell you that they identified more with hip hop and that a lot of their friends were in the Hispanic community. We weren't sitting at the same tables as the white kids. But then when I see it from a professional and scholastic perspective, how the parents, these Indian parents and what they wanted their children to do and how they wanted them to proceed through school and career aligned more, I would say, if you're an outsider looking in, that a black person or a Hispanic person would say, no, these Indian kids think they're white. So those are just the thoughts I was having, Rena. as Haj No, was it's great because, Haj, you can speak to that. You talk about like immigrants not latching on to Martin Luther King's or, or the black struggle in America, right? Absolutely. In, you, in your book? Yeah, there's a whole chapter actually that looks at Muslim rights advocates and their whole history of associating themselves with whiteness, just as Nurjahan said. Like, this is a story where just the history of immigration in the United States has been a history of associating with whiteness because whiteness is power. It has always been the dominant form of upward mobility. If you associate yourself with white people, if you become provisionally accepted by them, which means buying into white supremacy, like doing the white supremacist project, separating yourself from other racialized minorities, then you gain some semblance of power. And especially for, I mean, like South Asian, Indian immigrants, like this is a common story. And you see this with Nikki Hill, you see it with Vivek Ramaswamy, like this is a story where you associate yourself with white people, you take on the role of the model minority, and you play the game, and you Mm -hmm. can rise up in the ranks, but at what cost, right? And so that's, I mean, like in the LA Times op-ed, which I think you referenced, like, that's the story I'm telling is that it's been harmful to black communities mm-hmm. and it's been racist in its own way because it means that by associating yourself with whiteness, you are separating yourself from black people who, frankly, you're building this kind of wealth and building this upward mobility off of. Like they are the ones that have created an infrastructure for racialized immigrants like us. You're reminding me of the Proud Boy leader, um, Eve, was it? Uh, which one who is, he is, I don't know what his ethnicity is, but it went viral because you're just looking at this man who's of color, who is a proud boy leader. And he got the longest sentence. I can't get his name right now. Cause I don't have like a tech that's in my ear going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't remember either. But I just was looking at that. Like everyone was like, like the moment I said, wait, what? What? Mm-hmm. I was like, he's fighting for what? And he's over there and he's the leader and he's meeting with these individuals like like he's a white yeah. man. And it's so it's it's like I think we need to have more conversations about what happened to this man of color where he's so radicalized to the point where he's storming the Capitol on January 6th. And now <laughs> the joke is. And you still got the longest mm-hmm, sentence so mm-hmm. far. So how did that work for you? How did that work out for you? Does it ever work out for immigrants who really do adopt like sort of like a white trajectory? Does it ever work out for you? Yeah, I mean, it's like, how do you define work out, right? Because you could look at Nikki Haley and be like, if she is a presidential candidate in a sense. Like she's running for president. She's aiming for the highest office in the land. And she's acquired so much power along the way. But is it worth it? 
I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you define like that measure of success. Is it like the power of the money? Is it being able to sleep at night, having a call to conscience, being in community with other people? That's, that's what I wonder about. What do you think, Norjahan? I also think it's about whether you feel you're being excommunicated from your community, right? Like if you look at Vivek, and like I said, I think that Indians might be a good example of the model minority. And um, and you peel back the layers and you think about the Indian immigrants who came in the 70s and 80s, many of whom were physicians, they were voting Republican and they would say they were voting Republican for the tax purposes. Like I have to save my money and send it back home to my family and sponsor my younger siblings to get to America. So like that, that might be some of the root of it. Again, I'm generalizing from what I've experienced and understood. And um, you see someone like Vivek and if the Indian community is not excommunicating him for associating with whites and advocating for those conservative views, then he might feel like he, he is succeeding. Um, but if you are then suddenly being excommunicated and being questioned, like we're talking about Enrique, and like, what did that get you? Then where, what, what is success for you, Enrique? Um, thanks to me. And I say, and again, I mean, we, I, I know you talked, you sent us an article on Hassan Minaj. I mean, I talk about this, that that's my identity struggle because being Indian is one thing, but being a Muslim Indian is a different thing altogether, right? So um, we're, we're definitely seeing the Indian Muslim community being marginalized just by you know, the, the government in India and in general. So there's, there's different viewpoints where you start seeing Muslim Indians, I think, identifying more with the civil rights movement and those struggles and, and trying to find those commonalities more so than perhaps uh, an Indian of um, Hindu or Sikh descent. And I don't want to go any further without giving you your credit because you, Nora Jahan, you unexpectedly made it into the semifinals of the 2022 Sports Illustrated Swim Search Competition. And you made it your mission to get women excited about the prospect of falling on their faces over and over if it means they are making their one life on the earth, on this earth count. If it means they are making their one life on this earth count. I got it. I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> this is a theme on my show, by the way. Um, but I that's so outside of Indian culture. Am I right or am I wrong? To yeah, do, it, and Muslim culture to do this. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. It is outside of, I think, both more, more so the Muslim religion. It's outside of that. So what was, how did you, how did you make that decision to do it? And was it like, was it difficult to make that decision? Was anyone telling you, no, this is not something you can do or? Yeah, I think I, I've always, I think grew up hearing no, not, and it, this isn't a, you know, attack on my parents or the community. But I think when you are a child of immigrants and they were, they were straddling three cultures, my parents, right? The Indian culture, the culture that comes with the Islamic religion, and then this American culture and trying to figure out how to raise children who are born and raised in Southern California. How, how do you do that? And so the words no, and that feeling of guilt was constant and trying to wade through uh, a world in Southern California where it was blonde hair, blue eyed, Pam Anderson, like, you know, at the beach, sunny. So all of that. And, um, I had just felt early on that, um, I just kind of knew in my heart, I said, I don't think I'm going to be adopting this religion. 
I was like, this is not for me. And I just, I just knew it. And my parents thought, okay, well, she's going through a rebellious phase, whatnot. Um, she'll come back to, to fate and whatnot, because it was easy for my brother to figure out how to be an Amer- all-American kid, but to embrace the faith as well. And I loved the Indian culture, but a lot of the Indian culture is influenced by the Hindu religion. So as you get older, it's suddenly like, we're celebrating Diwali and Holi, which are rooted in Hindu religious aspects. But it's like, okay, it's time for Ramadan. We're going to fast. Oh, and then as you get older, BTW, we don't drink, even though your Indian friends are starting to drink. BTW, we don't date. There's no sex before marriage, even though it's totally fine that your Indian best friends that you've grown up with since you were two are starting to date and drink. So all those dynamics. And then on top of it, it's like, I'm in Southern California. I'm an all-American girl. I had harbored this like desire to be in Sports Illustrated. You know, you're a child, you just have these dreams. And, and I'm like, what would that be like? And it actually, this whole course of being out here in storytelling and public speaking is because I was always searching for my identity amongst these three different worlds. Ironically enough, I'm totally feminist. I'm all about all of us, girl power, independence. But getting married and finding my life partner gave me that feeling of, okay, I can say this out loud because I know who I am. I have that safety of not feeling like I'm going to be excommunicated from any community. I'm building my own world. And I said it out loud at the end of 2021. I said, this is what something I've been dreaming of. I know I'm getting older, but let me just... And he said, why not? Why not try for it? And I went out for it. And... um and made it to the semifinals amongst these amazing superstar women. But it was it was awesome just going for your going for your dream and kind of doing it fearlessly. I make no apologies. I have all the respect in the world for the religion that my parents follow. I love this culture, um, but I did it unapologetically. Nice. I love that. You said what you wanted. You went for it. You got to say it. I saw that you did go back the year after. Did you go the year Martha Stewart was? <laughs> I, wanted, yeah. I was like, did you lose to Martha Stewart? <laughs> <laughs> no, Martha's like in her own, she's in her own bracket, right? Like it was, it's a, did, I did go out again the following year. I did, I didn't make it, um, but we're gearing up for the third year. And I said, heck yeah, like, you know, why not? Third time's a charm. I'm going to go out, try for it. Um, and I'm going to see what the vibes are. If I feel like going out for it again, I will because I made a lot of great friends and I got to know the editors and they're amazing. It's awesome. It's it's actually a pretty beautiful platform and I do think we just need more diverse women there um, representing. About that, my curiosity is the community you talk about for that platform for Sports Illustrated. Like mm-hmm. some women, you always hear the controversial, why do we have to put on a bathing suit? What, you know, or... What was our sexuality, the story, but what is it about the Sports Illustrated um, community that is that is good or that you like about it that is that people do not know? I think, like I said, going out for it was totally selfish. Just it was my feeling of I am owning my identity. It's one that I created. It's not one that I was born into. It's not one that I was forced upon me. And I think that's what I, that's what I was celebrating in being in Sports Illustrated. If I told you I was doing it when I was 20, it would totally be an act of rebellion. But now it's like, it's okay if you're not exactly who your parents thought you were going to be. You actually can still have an amazing dynamic with them, an amazing relationship, an amazing career. I did not know or even give a second thought, Marina, to what the community would be like with Sports mm. Illustrated. I didn't even 
frankly care. I was like, I, I, I'm doing this to show other women out there that we can do it. And I'm doing it so that the other Muslim women who decided not to cover their hair don't feel like they're being critiqued or who cares if you're being, that's why I was doing it. Okay. Figuring out that there was a community of women who were really, really badass and exciting and dynamic at this stage in our lives. Look, um, that was a bonus. And it is a community. And I'm not going to lie. You got to wade through it, right? There's, there's, and any, you know, you move to a new city, you meet women you like, you meet women that aren't your vibe. I think it's that same dynamic in the, that community setting. But what I do love is that these editors are taking a lot of time to get to know women. And I give them a lot of credit that they are filtering out maybe those women that just, they're not necessarily girls, girls, or women's women, or if you don't have a platform, if if your whole life is like, you just want to be in this magazine, then maybe you should pursue a career as a professional model. But I think the women that I see them embracing, at least in the search competition, right? I know they pick celebrities and other women that are in the covers, but the women that are moving, advancing in the search competition, their lives are so much more than Sports Illustrated. They've already built platforms. They're already doing things in service of other communities or women. And um, I think Sports Illustrated becomes a bigger platform for them. I and love that. that's what I love about it too. I keep going out for it. I'm like, hey, I get to talk to people like you and Hodge, but if there's a bigger platform to really uh, cultivate a message and get it to people that aren't looking like you, you and I, then that's, that's, that's awesome. Now, Haj, you're listening to a Sports Illustrated model. I know, I'm dying. Are you Hopeful, this? not. <laughs> Are you going to go out, Haj? You or? should. <laughs> I I'm looking at her face. I have had like, two oh, children, and I'm so proud of it, but I don't need everyone to see it. It's, it's okay. We're good. But I'm so excited for you. I'm, I'm honestly so inspired. I think it's such a cool story. Thank you. And you should go. <laughs> that would That's, be awesome. You have a wonderful story too. Yeah. But you know what's interesting? Yes. So, um, like, Norjahan, like, I am so curious about your parents' um, reaction to this because I'm sitting here like, that is so cool. I admire that so much. My family would be so upset with me. And I say this actually, they, so they were raised Muslim in Iran and they um, are no longer. They like became political activists. You started reading Marx, decided religion was the opiate of the masses, you know, all of it. So I was raised atheist. But I think a lot of the cultural ideals of like humility and modesty, like those still seeped in, even though my parents were like hyper feminist, but not in a Western feminist way. Like to them, showing skin was still something that was all about patriarchy. Like they were like, there's no body positivity without patriarchy. And I was sort of like, I don't know if I agree with that, but it, I still internalized. So that's why I'm looking at you in awe and also just so curious about like, how are your parents reacting? It's, it's an awesome question. And, you know, saying this on your podcast, I didn't even tell my parents. Like I, I didn't, I said, I, that's what I say about when I got, and maybe this feels very traditional. Um, and so you have to play the game, how it suits you and your mental health, right? Like I, I felt like I started checking all these boxes as I was finding my identity. Like I got the career, I mean, I did the education path, right? Like I said, I'm going to get educated. So there's no disputes there. Then going into a professional career, they have to be happy with that, you know? And then I, I, and I married outside of our community, um, but they love my partner. They, they absolutely love my husband. And I think that 
suddenly I said, you know, I, and I'm not saying this in a, um, a bitter way, but I did what I think would make my parents really proud and really happy. And I feel like our relationship evolved where they're getting to know me. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. And they at the editor said, well, what happens if like you win this and we put you in a bikini? I said, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. You know, I'm like, we'll cross that. Cause, and, and I think that's when they also realized too, it's not just about her wanting to be in a bikini. It's just about so much more of like how the images from those SI magazines were seeped into my, my hairy, unibrowed brain as like the seven-year-old trying to figure it out in Southern California. I think that my parents have very much accepted that I'm straddling three worlds. I don't put it in their face out of respect. It's not because I'm trying to hide it, but I think it's just all of us like we respect our elders. Um, but if I make it, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. But again, unapologetically, and I do feel a safety in I met a partner who's not going to tell me that everything goes away just because you know you've shown skin. And I think that was the message we were given a lot growing up in like Islamic studies and Islamic school. Oh, that's like that's freedom. That's freedom right there. That, that is freedom. freedom. I've talked about it. I think I've talked about it on the show. Like just listening to you reminding me of where I'm still like, like the Sports Illustrated image, the the bathing suit and and beyond, right? And even in my own family, how uh, I still act a certain way because of certain things my grandfather would say. Now, it wasn't religious-based. It was just like his beliefs. And I never will forget. I, and I did do a, um, a Milwaukee for the Women's Fund. I talked about this, about how my grandfather made me feel so bad for developing early. Because I have, I've always had large breasts, but I never felt like uh, I always felt ashamed of it. So because of the way he made me feel, I re- I'll never forget him saying to my mother, "Oh my God, she's look at her. They're only going to want one thing." And that, you know, I, I look today at young women like who are just owning their sexuality. I'm so envious because even today I'm. St- still nervous about showing too much skin, like you were saying. It's so important. There's so much beyond, more beyond that, that you can have so much more with that, with showing your skin. I've always felt like hiding my skin, especially as a stand-up comedian, kept me safe. And then I was envious of women like Amy Schumer, who owned her sexuality. And I always thought, as a black woman too, the other layer to that is sexuality for black women means a different thing for an audience. You know, it's sort of expected or it's sort of... So I had all of those layers. So when I hear you talk about your experience as a Sports Illustrated going out for that, it does invoke a lot of emotion. I'm sure not just in me and in a lot of yeah. women. Yeah, I think, and I don't know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about it, like the the... I think it comes like that, that feeling of self-worth and confidence. Like I know if I'm showing skin for the sake of needing attention and I know if I'm doing it like, okay, there's going to be a shoot for Sports Illustrated. But I also really feel confident and I I see that, Hodge, I see that in you about um, my intellect 
and about what I bring to the table, right? And you can get that self-worth, whether it's from like master's degrees or reading or engaging with a great network. So sometimes I, I enjoy this notion of showing up on my work calls, like zero makeup, totally, like I'm in my sweatshirt, I work from home, I completely got rid of my work wardrobe and I'm on these calls and I, I'm, I like I like when they have no expectations of me because then I open my mouth and I'm very confident about what I'm going to say about this topic. Like, let's talk healthcare, let's talk health insurance, let's go. But I, I almost I almost like setting that bar. And so if they think, oh, she, she can't, can't possibly be that smart, she's just running around in a bikini, I, I'm up for that challenge. And I think it's because I didn't define my childhood by wanting to be that um the, the professional bikini model, I was doing other things. So I don't know. And, and, and I'll just throw this out there, Marina, that you were talking about. That's so interesting about black comedians and female black comedians. And if they're, you know, talking about their sexuality and that's, then they get pigeonholed in their comedy show. I will just say, I just went to a comedy show last weekend and the opening act was a um, young black man. He was hilarious. Like he was so funny. I have been still thinking about the jokes he was cracking. And then the main act was a young white comedian. And my friends and I turned to each other and we said, gosh, like the main act, his entire act, all his jokes were dependent on sex and vulgarity. Whereas like the black comedian turned an entire, he made a whole bit because he's from the South about insects. It was just so funny. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And it was, it was hilarious, you know, and uh, the white comedian's entire entire basis of, of an hour and change act was all about sex. <laughs> and he, you know, I used to do a joke. It's in my special, single black female. Both of you should check it out if you have not. I sort of talk about that struggle of wanting to just talk about random things versus what the audience expectation is as a, for a black woman. Like, I say, like, I follow the white comedian who's just talking about horses. By the way, it was Jim Gaffigan. He knows this already. And I was so envious of it because he was just, and it was great material about horses, but I was just so envious of it because I knew I couldn't get away with that. If I was up here talking about that, people would be like, wait, wait, you know, what, you know what's going on? Like, back to you, Haj, on, like, the, the past four years has been a lot for comedians as far as what we're ex sort of expected to talk about. Like the fact that this brother was talking about insects, God bless him and I'd love <laughs> to see it. But I have been at a point where you're always in front of an audience that is, in my mainstream rooms are white, some of them are Republicans. And so you sort of like, you do your material, you're ballsy, but then you also know that it, it, it can get a little bit exhausting. Um, I guess my question to you, Haj, is in, the, in your research, I have so many questions for you, but I'm going to try to get them all in. Let's see. <laughs> Specifically in the past, since the pandemic, in your research, what are you finding like that, I guess, people are co-opting for political purpose. Yeah. I'm, Is that a good Yeah, hundred percent. I, I mean, I, I think way. like the, the co-optation of history, just like revisionist history in general is just American. It's just like, honestly, you could find it across any society. It's kind of part of the process of consolidating power is like you revise the past for your political story. 
And if you can preserve things the way they are, tell people that they make sense because the past tells us that this is how it's supposed to be. Like the United States is usually the story of like the founding fathers. But then when you think about the story of the civil rights movement, it's used as this revisionist history where like that was the end of racism. So we did it. Like, cool. There's King standing on the steps of Lincoln Memorial saying he has a dream and his dream has been realized. Like it's real now. Like there's colorblindness, racism's done. So we can move on. So that's the way that revisionist history has gotten built. And so even when you think about your question about like the pandemic, like co-opting the past, retelling the past is also something we're doing now with the pandemic. And this is coming from above. Like this is this kind of national story about the pandemic being over and we survived it and we did it. And yet on the ground, people are dying every day. I'm like, I got it for the first time. I was like so proud. I was one of these like holding on just as one of the last people who had never gotten it. And I got it in May and it was awful. Like I, I understood how people die from this thing because as somebody who was vaccinated, I was so sick and I could only imagine how much worse it would have been. And so this is all to say like the way that we think about the past has so much consequence for how we act right now in the present to try to solve social problems, to try to create a future. So it's a total failure of the imagination when you just don't understand the past as it is. Like you don't understand that racism never ended you don't understand that Dr. King was a total radical who nobody liked, like 75% of Americans hated him in the last year of his life. All of these important contextual pieces that are not just things that happened that we should move on from, they literally explain the state of affairs today. So they could even explain why, for example, we didn't have a social safety net to get us out of the pandemic. They can explain why Trump became president. Like there's so much that lies in the past that it drives me crazy. And I'm not even a historian. But I've become such a stan for understanding the past because I'm just like, if you don't understand what happened, you cannot promise yourself you're not going to do it again. You can even think about it like your own life. People go to therapy to unpack their own past so they don't keep repeating the same patterns. So that's totally true at a collective level as well. So what are some things you would say like that happened in the past, um, specifically with Martin Luther King, that you see kind of repeating itself again? Well, I mean, I think the... I mean, I know, like, books. Yeah, well, it's like the literal repeal of civil rights. So the idea that, for example, affirmative action is unnecessary, or the idea that voting rights, like, we don't need a voting rights act because racism's over. So, you know, you see this moment where the Supreme Court repeals part of the Voting Rights Act, and this is another moment where people invoke Dr. King. They say Dr. King's dream has been realized. He wouldn't want us to have all of these restrictions on states. So they repeal this essential part of the Voting Rights Act. And just as soon as they do it, all of these states that have been protected from voter disenfranchisement are suddenly implementing all of these new laws, redistricting in ways that end up disenfranchising. Yeah, you guessed it, Black Americans. So it's just one of these things where like we keep repeating and it's intentional. Like that's the part that makes me just like want to grab the country and like shake it by its shoulders is the part where... It's the strategy that people in power use, and it's so effective because then it creates this perception of threat among white Americans where they're like, oh, yeah, like that is a threat to me as a white American. Yeah, we shouldn't have all of these laws in place that protect black and brown Americans because somehow that takes something from me. And it's it, like I said, super effective. It's like we've seen it play out in all these different ways across all different realms, like from housing to environment. 
I, I just, it's a story that's so widespread. It's like in the book, I'm just ringing the alarm over and over again. And it, it feels repetitive in some ways because each chapter just takes like a different set of social movements. Like we have like one about the LGBTQIA movement, there's another one about immigrant rights, another one about Muslim rights, the one about Me Too and Say Her Name. And it's just different realms of society where you see the exact same pattern playing out over and over again. So I'm like, we have to pay attention. We have to reckon with the past. And I think it's one of the only ways to actually reconcile. It's like you cannot reconcile without reckoning. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love what you said about COVID and the because I've been saying this on the show. Every, they, people get annoyed with me because I don't want to forget, right? It's it is like nine eleven. Never forget, right? I mean, a lot of people died from COVID, mm-hmm. and it seems like we've just moved on in a very unhealthy way, and we're seeing all of the effects of just moving on and not dealing with what happened from the from our children having like mental illness, depression, suicide rate is up for young children. And I, I don't see the conversation ever happening. And it's such a good parallel to like the civil rights movement. Thank you for making that. Because it's I think it's a it's an American problem of sweeping, of not talking about. Let's just move on. Let's not talk about it. A lot of times on stage, I go on with a mask. I still wear my mask. I have to. I'm one of the vulnerable people anyway. But I, I go on and I say that. I go, I'm one of the vulnerable people. Is this okay? I know it can be triggering for you. <laughs> and they, <laughs> you know, because so every now and then you'll see someone like, why is she wearing a mask? It's okay. But you're so right. Like you said, you got really sick. I just talked to someone recently, a comedian, a well-known established comedian Super, you know, celebrity who said his doctor told him not to get the vaccine. And on mm. top of that, he said he just got really sick two months ago. And I'm like, so you're not listening then. You're not understanding, like, the reason, like, you can get really sick if you don't update those vaccines. You have to. So he hasn't been updating his vaccines. He probably got more sick than you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And he has a heart condition. Uh, it just drives me crazy when people really d- just have forgotten what has happened before. And, you know, it's interesting what you're saying also because I, and I, I hesitate to bring this up. I kind of, because I love this young guy, but he's just, and I've had him on the show and it was very complicated like after everyone was really upset. But I had a young man named Coleman Hughes who went up in front of um, and talked about reparations, how we don't need it. And he's a young guy. Um, I do like him. I see him regularly, but I just feel like he's misguided. Like his his view on it, and I have heard this from from black individuals, is that, come on, you know, we don't need the handout anymore. We don't need this. I I know how it's an insult to to offer me, let's say, Medicaid. It's an insult to uh, to, to to offer these programs or say that I need more assistance. And I feel like that theme is starting to also seep into this this election that's coming. With black voters. Yeah, that concerns me. So, yeah, that concerns me. Because I'm like, it's not it's not assistance. 
it's the money that you are owed. That's the difference, right? Yeah. It's literally, I mean, this amazing book was called When Affirmative Action Was White by Ira Katzmelson, the historian. It just shows, it lays out literally this historic evidence time and again throughout history, how white Americans have benefited from government provisions, whether it was the GI Act or the way that we, you know, redistrict, the way that we assign value to homes, like all of these things white Americans have benefited from. There is a cumulative advantage over time. There is a reason that they have been able to amass wealth. And that doesn't mean every white American. There's always this individual story where, like, even my students, I always have to tell them, like, on the first day of so it's one of these introductory classes, I have to tell them what we learn may not actually mesh with your personal experience. And that does not, you know, doesn't invalidate what you have experienced and what you felt. All it means is that the patterns at the societal level are telling us something else. And that is one of the hardest pills to swallow for folks who are struggling, like white folks who, you know, don't have a lot of money, have not experienced so-called white privilege. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist at a systemic level, right? So that's where, like, for me, the reparations piece, I'm like, no, dude, like, we do need it because it actually will solve a collective problem if it is implemented in the proper way. Um, But anyway, but that's all to say, like, when I talk to my young students who are like Gen Z, they were coming of age during the pandemic. They are not okay. And I think that the the collective trauma piece runs so deep. It's obviously unequally distributed across people for like different levels of precarity. My students who were like living paycheck to paycheck during the pandemic, whose parents lost jobs, who were caring for sick family members, they are living a much different life right now than my students who were just like bored from binging too much Netflix or, Mm. you know, like spent a lot of time baking bread. And I kind of fall in that camp, right? Like, yes, I was taking care of two kids and that was like trauma in itself because nobody signed up for 24 hours seven or 24 seven, just like parenting. (laughs) But I think like those are some of the, the divides that got exacerbated during the pandemic that like we just don't want to talk about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, so Noor Jahan, like you're hearing this and like, what do you see? Like in the, in the past four years, you see that you, you hear about civil rights, you know, and what's happening in Florida with the the books not being allowed and college courses. Um, I forget what type of course it's not just regular college courses. It's African-American studies, um, African-American studies in general studies for, uh, was it, it's in high school. They have, um, sometimes they have like advanced. Yeah, AP. Yeah, advanced places. Yeah, AP Thank courses. you, AP. You know what? I wasn't in AP, so it's probably like I'm, <laughs> I'm repressing. The, I'm like, I wanted to be. <laughs> but they are preventing the course, AP course. So like when you hear this, does, does, it, does it affect your world? Does, do you see this and go, oh. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it affects my world deeply I, because I married a white American, right? So, you know, so he's I fine think... too, by the way. I saw a picture. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, he's, he's a cutie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's cute. Um, and, and um, you know, I had to come to a lot of like, I had some reckonings of my own in appreciating where I grew up in Southern California and understanding that my family and that my Indian community 
you know, growing up in the seventies and eighties voted Republican, right? Like, and there, there was probably, there wasn't, there wasn't this like stigma to that. It was just expl- explained as it was, like I told you all these physicians that are coming from India and they're making their money and they're sending it home. So that's why we vote Republican. And then, you know, coming of age, then, uh, I went to UCLA, um, Basically, I started school a week after 9-11. So suddenly, I grew up Indian, and knowing that I'm Indian, and then all people wanted to talk about was my Middle Eastern name when I got to UCLA a week after 9-11. Oh, your name's Noor Ahmed? Are you Muslim? And you know, and I, at that time, I'd already come to this feeling of I don't identify with this religion the way my parents are uh, identify with that. I said, no, I'm Indian. Right? And I'm like, oh, here I am with this Ahmed, you know, maiden name. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm Indian, I'm Indian, I'm Indian. So I'm like running away from that Muslim identity. And where did I run to? I will be the first to say I ran right to this all-American white identity. Of like, okay, I don't, the Indians aren't really down because they think I'm Muslim. And I don't want to be with the Muslims. And they also don't think I'm that Muslim because I'm Indian. So, you know, I can think I'm just going to go hang out with Asian kids and the white kids in in school. So um, then all of a sudden, Obama comes to to become our president. And, you know, I remember my father calling me and saying, well, I'm voting for him. <laughs> voting for Obama. Like, this is amazing. And I said, yeah, I'm like, this is amazing in our lifetime. And, and of course, because my parents are Indian, but they're also Muslim. And he's like, I never would have thought someone who has a Muslim father is going to be president of this country. Like, I'm so proud. And, and he voted for Obama. And um, then all of a sudden, there's Trump running. And then my dad's calling me again and saying, well, I mean, you know, taxes be damned. Like I cannot vote for this person. Like he might, you know, our entire family might have to leave this country. Like, like that's how Muslim families were thinking. And, and when, you know, when, when Trump was running that people were preparing within these Muslim communities that we have to move our money out of America and we might have to prepare that we might get marginalized and, 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 and moved. I mean, there were, there were talks about moving us into like camps like that. That's how scared the Muslim communities were when there was this idea of like Trump becoming president. And then I meet my 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 husband, my now husband, right? And and reconciling with understanding that I married into a family that just like my family in the 70s and 80s were Republicans and then figuring that my child will be if we have children half white. And having to have these conversations about are we raising these kids in Florida or are we raising these kids in New York? Because this is very scary if they're not going to be taught things that I definitely think they need to be taught. And having to have those conversations and and putting aside my biases and my judgments and getting to know my in-law, like not just my immediate in-laws, but like the extended family. And, and it's a constant reminder. And I don't know how else to say it, except that like I had to force myself to remember that you have to get to know people on that individual level. And for my personal life to, to continue forward to, to Hodge's point, like you're going to have these students that say, well, that's not my personal experience. And I have to, I think that's where I'm at Marina in these past four years, everyone I meet might be someone that's outside of uh, the world that I was used to growing up or the world that I co-opted in college to survive post 9-11 with this Middle Eastern name. And I have to take people at face value and get to know them. And I, I don't mean to circle back to this, but that's also what Sports Illustrated was. Like I met women that I don't think I'd ever, ever cross paths with who maybe fundamentally were on completely different sides of each spectrum on different topics. But um, there's a shared dream. There's these shared passions and, and it turns into actually getting to know these folks. So it's a daily struggle of like, oh, what are what do you think about that, Hunter? Oh, well, this is what I think about that, and you know, it 
I'll check back in if we have kids and we'll see what happens. But, uh, but yeah, you know, there's, there's always some delicate conversations, but I give, but I give him a lot of credit. I give like my in-laws credit. I give my parents credit. Everyone thinks about, I said, you know, when something bothers me, like the things that are going on in India really bother me because it's a parallel that's happening there. So I feel it here as a Muslim and I feel it there as a Muslim. Um, even if I don't identify as Muslim, I'm like, well, my family is, and I, they're, they're, they're in India, they are banning the, um, um, teachings of the Mughal era to elementary school children and general ed. You can learn about the Mughal era and the Mughal dynasty if you're going to choose in college to major in that. But in India, they're doing away with it in general education. And there was all these jokes on Twitter. Oh, okay, so like when Gen Z or Gen Alpha ask who built the Taj Mahal, what are, what are they going to say? What's their response to that? And that upsets me so much, you know, and I, I appreciate that m- my partner can now understand why that upsets me. And it's like, oh yeah, like, I'm like, yeah, this is, you know, my children, like, what are, what are, what are we going to teach them? So it, you know, um, it's allowed me to give people more credit if I give them enough context. Sorry, long answer, but that's what these no, past four years great. have been like. Yeah. I mean, you hear that, Haj, and what are you, what are you as a researcher, what are you what are you getting? Oh my God, that? there's so much. I sound like a no, therapist. I know, I'm so I know, sorry. I love it. How does it make you feel? <laughs> I'm definitely having feelings. There's so much there. Like even your 9-11 experience, Norjahan, like that totally resonates with me. We must be the same age because I, um, it was my second week of my first year in college when it happened. And yeah, and it was a very yeah. similar experience of a name like which had always been a quote unquote funny foreign name that people would always kind of laugh about but not ask questions about suddenly became the question sort of like oh what kind of what kind oh, of yeah. name is that like where are you from and you know and I'm like oh I'm from Northern Virginia it's like no where are you really from you know and it's always a little pointed a little skeptical and um, suspicious and it's like for me it was I was going to college at University of Virginia so it was a different political context too it was more conservative. Um, closer to DC. So there was a lot of kind of mobilization. I had like friends whose, you know, family had been working at the Twin Towers. So there was just the proximity piece also played into it where there was just a lot more intensity. But anyway, but I think a lot of what you're saying too makes me think about the the challenges of like when we think about revisionist history, which is obviously not just a US-based phenomenon. It's just a political phenomenon in general how do you fight it on the ground, right? Like when it is a story, a political project that's coming from above and the goal is to distort the past, to do certain political things, to make certain things happen, or even to sort of sweep certain things under the rug. When you think about the younger generations, I'm like, to think that our children wouldn't learn the complexities of the civil rights movement, of the history of enslavement, or even of, you know, indigenous genocide, like all of these things for me are terrifying. And I'm like, yes, I can, as an individual parent, educate my kids at home, but how do we come up with like a collective solution, you know? So that's like, that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. But then I think the other thing that I have to bring up because we're talking about 9-11 is that question about the stories that we have, because I think so many of us have stories from that era, like, especially if you're any kind of Brown, I know like even Latina, Latino, like, all of them have talked about being associated as brown and having to be like, I'm not that kind of brown, right? Like distinguish yourself. So I'm like, with this Hassan Minaj stuff, like he has been building, he's been building a whole comedic career off of telling these stories, right? 
And then it comes out that they're not his truth, right? Like they're fabrications in some part. They're built from like threads of truth from different people. I'm like, what do we make of that? Because that's something that I've actually been thinking a lot about in the last few days because I've sort of been trying to think about where I stand on it. You know, I know comedies never necessarily rely on truth. I'm Marina, like you should weigh in because like, what are the comedic rules here? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it is good time to go into these topics. Um, yeah, so just for our listeners, just so if you if you didn't know, uh, Hassan Minaj, Min, am I saying, God, he talked about his name being pronounced Hassan, wrong. Hassan Minaj. H- Hassan Minaj, and I know him. <laughs> and I, you know what, I have a habit of just like, I'll give up and just, comp- it's wrong, but I'll just say it the way I want. <laughs> Hassan Minaj admits to embellishing stand-up stories, including Daughter's Anthrax Scare. And the punchline is worth the fictionalized premise, is what he's saying. um, Hassan admitted to fabricating details in past stand-up specials, such as 2022's The King's Jester that streamed on Netflix. He described his story building process as being built around a seed of truth. My comedy Arnold Palmer is 70% emotional truth. This happened, and then 30% hyperly exaggeration fiction. And he's gone on to defend it, and he uh, he says, he doesn't think uh, he's manipulating the audience. I think they are coming for the emotional roller coaster ride to the people that are like, yo, that is way too crazy to happen. I don't care because, yeah, fuck, yeah, that's the point. I use the tools of stand-up comedy, hyperbole, changing names and locations, and compressing timelines to tell entertaining stories that's inherent to the art form. Now, the conversations I've had with comedians is they disagree. Uh, Mm. A lot of them think it's insulting, and it's a bad um, thing that he's representing us in this example. This is uh, not embellishing. Like, for me personally, I... I come from so much truth that people go, Marina, can you at least embellish? Like, come on. But I'm like, well, my life is so funny and it's, <laughs> I, you know, in its state that I don't really have. I do. I'll go to the left and the right to make it a little bit more funnier. Or the punchline is usually still for me is still in, in, in very much truth. Uh, so for me, that's, wild that anyone would take a, a story and and especially with your own child and anthrax falling on your child that that blew my mind uh that it has a tone of narcissism narcissistic in it and and i know hassan like i said i still pronounce his name wrong but <laughs> but I, i've known him i've known him since the very days of rooftop and his right, I loved him on the correspondent dinner. I thought he did such an amazing job. And I felt like that was really his lane. And I didn't feel like I thought that was authentic to him. I didn't feel like I, I didn't feel like anyone wrote that for him. So this part, this this segue off into where he's doing like stories that aren't true or seeds of truth. It's weird. It's very strange. So I was thinking about it a lot too. And um, my funny personal connection is, you know, Hassan went to UC Davis 
And I think he may have been like two years behind me at UCLA. And all like the Indian kids at all the UC schools in California all kind of knew each other because everyone would get together for these like big, epic like dance battles because in Indian culture, we like to dance. And there's like this like annual really big dance competition. So all the UC Indians, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And um, Indian Muslims, like I said, we were kind of a minority. So when I was like a third year or fourth year, someone had said, there's this like Indian Muslim kid up at Davis. Like you guys should meet, you guys should hang out. And it was Hassan. And, um, and I was like, no, no, no. I was like, I'm not dating Muslim guys. And um, so I always, you know, and so he is now this, it was so hard for me to read this and not be biased because mm. he is now um, sitting on a board with my old college roommate, who was my childhood best friend, and she and I ended up at UCLA together. She chose; she's also Indian Muslim. She chose the path of Islam, and she started covering her hair, does hijab. She's an amazing, amazing Hollywood director, and she sits on the same board as Hassan and Riz Ahmed, and it's called the Pillars Fund. And what they're doing is really trying to ensure that Hollywood has representation for Muslim characters. And they're not defined by being Muslim. Oh, I that know they're just yeah. So Lena Khan and and so like I just like I loved what they're representing. And and on my own side, like I've been pursuing screenwriting, and like Lena knows that, and like we've been like working on screenplays and thinking like that. And and Hassan and her are actually doing a, a movie on the dance competitions in these UC schools. So. I kind of thought, Marina, I was like, maybe he's getting really inspired by like the screenwriting and screenplay and, and scripting. And so you take these seeds of truths and you turn them into stories for scripts and your fictionalized characters. And maybe that kind of like influenced that, that the, the justification for these stories, but it didn't land well for me because, you know, whatever his rationalization is, is that if, if people are thinking what they're listening to is truth, right? Like I was like, okay, maybe you're a little influenced by working on these screenplays and you think you're a screenwriter now. But what he advocates for and the voice he's giving to Indian Muslims, I've always supported and I've always been like, oh, yes, thank you. Because he, he was one of the first people that was talking about Modi, right, on the Patriot Act and his, his show. And like people were listening, a mixed audience was listening to what is going on in India. And I was so relieved. He also married an Indian girl who's not Muslim. And I, so I just felt like there was a lot that he was breaking through and, and giving a voice. So the disappointing part is when I watched King Jester, before this all came out, when I watched King's Jester, I, you know, I turned to my husband and I was like, I don't know, he's just coming off really angry. And that's not what we want to be typecast as if you want to bring these issues to light. And and now to know that they're seeds of truth, I don't deny because that that is there is truth in that, that there were informants in, in these mosques like when we were growing up. But if it's not your truth, then is someone now going back? And if I, who support you and love what you're doing for the community and the voice you're giving to Indian Muslims and and felt you came off angry and that's not even your true story. And now what does that look like? Are you feeding a stereotype of just these like these angry marginalized communities? And that's kind of went through my head. So that's where it was disappointing. Um, However you want to justify it as like a screenwriter or writer or comedian, that's that that, I understand that I'm in advertising, right? We always say when we go pitch for clients business, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Like, Like we can all find our ways to rationalize things, but I think the bigger voice that he was giving to topics that need to be talked about, um, it's almost taking away from that. Even if he was saying, no, I'm, I'm a collective voice. It's, it's, it, it, you know, I mean, there's going to be naysayers and that that's unfortunate for all the work he is doing. Uh, tick took away a little bit. So 
That's my thoughts on it. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think, so there are so many strands in there where I'm like, I I think it's okay to hold multiple truths or sort of like intention and say these issues can contain multitudes and all of this. Like, I think what disappoints me is that his reaction seemed um, defensive and he really doubled down and said, I think the exact quote was something like the emotional truth is more important than the factual truth. Mm -hmm. That to me is a really dangerous way of thinking because this is what I'm fighting against every day with thinking even yeah. about like revisionist history, right? It's the idea that there's this both sides of them. And like, if that's the way you experience the past, well, that's just as valid as what literally happened. So I think what's hard is I've literally, I've interviewed close to 200 Muslims. I did this project. It was focus groups in eight cities across the United States of Muslim communities to try to understand what their experiences of counterterrorism looked like after 9-11 with like these community policing programs where people really thought police could work with communities and they would help them identify the terrorists and the mix. And like the informants were so real. So many of these communities had all kinds of trauma and it was from like these police who posed as Muslims and would come and pray with them in their mosques and build trust and then try to essentially bait somebody into some sort of terrorist act so they could like have a win for the war on terror. So the fact that he would take like threads of things that literally happened to people that traumatized entire communities and then pose it as his own story, which I think very well could be comedic practice among some. Like Marina, it's interesting to to hear like folks are pushing back against that as comedic practice. I feel like I've heard like a lot of stand-up where I'm like, I'm sure that didn't really happen. But I think you have to think about what the stakes are, right? Like it's one thing to tell like a stupid story about like something that happened in elementary school that didn't like totally happen. And it's much different to tell a story that has like serious political stakes that has something to do with like a structural truth. So for me, Mm -hmm. I'm like, don't say the emotional truth is more important. I don't even know that that's really what he meant, but that is what he put out there. And I would love to see him like engage a little bit with some of the critique, because I don't think the critique is all like, you're a liar, we're going to cancel you. I think some of the critique is genuine disappointment and concern from advocates who have been working so hard to try to bring these subjects and these issues into the public sphere. And like, have comedians on your side is everything because they are some of the best storytellers, right? Like, to, to bridge the structural and the systemic with individuals and to bring like a story and humor and human emotion to it. That's everything. I'm always saying, like, we need more of that in academia because we are so boring and jargony and dry. I'm like, if we could be better storytellers and have human emotion in our system. You're not boring, just so you know. Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of us really are. Um, But I'm like, I just, it just feels like a missed opportunity to have a bigger conversation because I think, like, there's a lot there that we could work with. So I'm like, Hassan, come back to the table. Like, hop on. I'll hop on podcast with you. Like, let's talk about it. And I love the way you put that. Like, come back to the table. Let's just talk about it instead of like, no one's canceling you. It's kind of like the Ashton Kutcher thing with the letter they wrote, right? And there's they did all this good, but now they have to leave as being president mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Uh, the organization that was actually helping, you know, children or of abuse, sexual abuse, and so like. We to have conversations with people instead of them becoming just offensive is important. Oh, I, I, 
I agree. And I think that, like, Hassan is not a bad guy. It's clear. But I do think that this industry can push you so fast into, like, um, like doing an hour is hard. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many hours he has, but I, I think he's had to, to produce, you know, we could even say Chappelle, you could see that they have to produce these hours. It takes years to develop an hour. Like, years. Like, sometimes the first comedians, they're young, when they're young, those hours are some of their best because those that's the material that developed over the course of 10, maybe 15 years. And now what they're doing is they're really pushing comedians to produce material within a year. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that's why he was forced to sort of embellish this way. Yeah. Uh, this is not embellishment. This is more of like fabricating stories that aren't yours. But um, like you said, to make up the joke or to make up stories like, you know, like saying you stole a woman's purse, like a, like an old hacky joke would be like a white woman was on the elevator with me and she kept looking at me like I was going to steal her purse. And you know, so then I stole it. You know, that would be like, uh, that's like a regular bit that everyone kind of uses and but obviously, I didn't steal the purse, right? So that is is an obvious joke, and that is one that is not based in something like you were saying about um, Hajj about like you know these real stories that actually happen to people, like you know anthrax falling on a child, like that. That to me stood out to me was the most for me was the most disturbing. Is I couldn't, I don't have children, but it, you know like. I couldn't lie about my child's experience uh, for entertainment or for comedy's sake either because the people who are listening, are especially his fan base, right? They really depended on him. And it's giving those Republicans and that right wing the ammunition they needed. I think that's... that's when you're like, come back to the table, you're not canceled, is because we we don't want someone who has that kind of platform and that reach to stop talking about these topics and these yes. issues and doing it in a way that connects with folks through storytelling. That's like the last thing is what we want someone like that to stop doing that. But um, it's, it's, um, it's almost like if he wrote a screenplay and and turn that into the the you know like the opening act of the screenplay. We'd all be like, "This is great! This is a collective experience of all these different folks." And he's channeled it into this one character and this complete fiction scripted movie that captures like that emotional truth. Great, I'm all for it, you know. But 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 presenting it as his own, and then if he, and I wondered like they're debating and weighing. You know, if I don't tell this as my own story in a comedy special, like it doesn't land. It doesn't. Hit. I don't know Marina that world. So, yeah, I, I don't know what what forced that that decision to be made. But I agree that, um, and who knows how it was written in the article too. Came off a little defensive. Um, whether he was expecting that to be the the line of questioning, I, I don't know. But I hope um, he does because I know Lena personally. I've known her since I was five, and. Um, there's wow, a, that's a long time to know someone, isn't it? Yeah, we've no, yeah, we've, <laughs> it's, it's Southern California. Yeah, and, and you know, and 
I know who she is as a person. She's very passionate about the topics she speaks about, but she also just breaks barriers, right? Like Disney hires her to do these amazing movies. She directed episodes of like Mindy Kaling's Never Have I Ever. That's a very sexually sexually charged, you know, um, TV show for youth. And here she is, this hijabi Muslim woman. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll direct these episodes and, you know, advocating for like a young Indian Muslim character to be on the show. And so... I know what a great person she is and for her to align to Hassan and Riz in this Pillars Fund, um, that's why I'm like, I don't want this to be at the end. And I love that. Like, Hunt, you need to get him on a podcast with Marina and you. And Oh, yeah, I'd love to. And you, though. Like, <laughs> I think I the two of you up. should reminisce about the dance I'm like, hey, we almost dated. Yeah, <laughs> we almost dated. <laughs> I guess, like, pro- progress is messy, right? It's not perfect. And sometimes in its attempt to be heard, it can be messy. I think that is what we don't give a lot of grace to today. We're, we're just so ready to cancel people. Yeah. However, this is a big one. This is for the community, for the county community. This, this is a big one. This is not, this, this ain't good for him. Mm. Um, I, I, I didn't know that. Par- yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I was sitting around listening to a couple of the conversations and, uh, I mean, I think because it, it bothers me the most because I feel like comedy is becoming more diverse and we're starting to hear from more people of color and that's so important. So anything like this sort of like kind of stalls it in a sense, mm. but hopefully it doesn't. You know, I think that there are so many voices out there that if you're not doing it the right way, you you may not end up being that voice. And that's that's the problem. You know, um, authenticity for me is, is very, very important in all levels of sc- screenwriting and in uh, performance. That's just me personally as an artist. And um, when it's co-opted... Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to throw in some big words because I was like, where am I going with this? You can see it. Stra- the truth is always stranger than fiction. You know, so when you don't, I'm sure Hassan has some stories that we would love to hear. His, he, he walks on stage and we're immediately interested in knowing whatever that truth is, whether it be you are from a family, you have Republicans, and you know, whatever that is, it's always going to tell a white audience something they don't know. Because they're not getting it every day. So when it's like, yeah, when it's like the truth is sort of like, eh. <laughs> then we're going to wonder, like, we're doing that to our own stories now? Oh, God. you know. I know. I will say one uh, thing. Can anyway. I just jump in? So I think what's interesting is like, that's absolutely right. I also think that, and I think you would agree, that the standards and definitions of authenticity are they're different for racialized groups. Like they're larger, like the standards are higher. Um, And I think the impulse or even the pressure to present some kind of trauma porn, like that's very real as well. And I think you were saying that, right? Like the pressure to say something that has something to do with like a, a history of enslavement or like, you know, being oppressed and to say something about social justice. Like all of those impulses are imposed from outside. And so I do understand why part of it is like you can't succeed unless you feed into it in some way or 
give the audience what they're expecting, especially if you're new. But I think it's more like when you do have the platform, then you have the greater responsibility. And like that is an opportunity to maybe represent something a little wider, more complex. But I'm always saying like, I think we haven't been trained like as a people, as a society, we haven't been trained to deal with complexity. Like, I think it's just, it's very easy to simplify and reduce things to binaries. It's one thing or the other. It can't be something messy in between. And that's like part of the political project. I never want to blame individuals. I don't think we're stupid people. I just think that that's the way that society has been built. Like it's been built so that we have to hustle to feed ourselves. It's been built so that we're flooded with information. Half of it's fake, you know, and that we're trying to sort through all of it and make our way. And I'm like, somewhere in there, we have the shreds of truth within us where we're like, that doesn't feel right. Like that doesn't jive with me. And I'm like, those are the pieces we have to hold on to and just crowd out the rest of the noise. And I'm like, once we really latch on to our inner truth, like, and I'm now I'm getting all woo woo Oprah, but like, I really believe it. <laughs> you know, I really think like that's the place where we make the true connections to each other. And we can allow for more things to exist. Like Nora Jahan was saying, right? I'm like, I too have extended family who's, you know, evangelical Christian, Trump voters, like on paper, you'd be like, why are you hanging out with them? But I'm like, you have those individual conversations and you're like, oh, there's actually more here and I want to know more. And it's not as easy as writing you off because you voted a certain way. Yeah, I love that. And it leads to this article, which we've already been talking about. Your article, actually, that you wrote about immigrant communities are indebted to the civil rights movement, but when will they grapple with their own anti-Blackness? So my question is... How do you talk to people in your own family about anti-blackness? Because I know I, I always have, I, I'm one of the people that people feel they could say everything to. So they'll ask me questions that they don't feel like they can ask anyone else. Or they'll tell me things about their family and being Trump voters. So how do you talk to people in your family or in your circle? I'll start with you. Um, Hush, Man, it's like a, that's the hardest question because... One of the things I've been saying a lot lately is like, we have to talk to our own people. So I don't necessarily think like I need to go talk to the white Trump voter. Granted, like, you know, I just mentioned the ones in my own extended family, like I will talk to them. But I think talking to our own people gives us a sense of like a common page, like commonality where it's a little bit easier to start having difficult conversations as opposed to trying to make like seven leaps especially when, as we know, we're going to be read as biased from the get-go simply because of the way we look. Like when I teach white students who are really resistant to ideas about systemic racism, I already know that if I had a white colleague teaching the class, it would already be, the message would be received in a different way. Like there's evidence of this. This has like been studied. But that's all to say that I think when we talk to our own communities and I'm like, get your people, this is the whole thing, this hashtag get your people, I think when you talk to your own people, starting with a community history is a really good place to start because you don't have to jump into like political ideals or, you know, how you want to vote on taxes. You don't have to get into those lofty, hyper-politicized questions. It could just be a question of what is the history of our community in this country? And like Noor Jahan has been saying about, you know, the Indians coming over as doctors in the 80s. It's a really helpful way to understand how you fit in within the larger context of the United States. And then even thinking about my book, like the way I've seen immigrant rights groups, for example, or Muslim rights groups connect to American history is by understanding that 
they have long histories in the United States. Like for Muslim rights advocates who were mostly South Asian and Middle Eastern, they had spent decades like avoiding black people, separating themselves from them, describing themselves as not like those other minorities because they were upwardly mobile, they were well-educated, they really like thought of themselves as aspirationally white. It was once they learned that the history of Muslims in the United States is a story about black Muslims, it's a story of enslavement, once they started making those connections and understanding that they had linked fate, right? Like that their fates were intertwined, that Black people were not separate from them. They were part of them. It was learning those histories that actually opened up a space to make genuine connections to American history, to Black history. And then they started building coalitions from there. Like it ended up being a really powerful way that opened up their worlds instead of constraining them, which I think is like sometimes the conception is like if you learn too much about the bad things that happened in the past, you're going to become a victim. You know, you're going to feel like ashamed or small. I have found the complete opposite. I find that it it opens up people's world. It gives them a sense of hope. It makes them realize they're not alone in this place and all the experiences they've had of racism or even classism. It's like, oh, these are the connections. Like this is the bridge to other people. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, when I'm doing my little house dancing and my Irish friend is like, oh, Marina, you're doing the... (laughs) (laughs) You're doing like, you know, we do this. (laughs) Yes. I'm like, yeah, let's 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 go back in history and figure out why that is. There's a reason for that, right? Yeah. So, um, so Norja Han, how do you talk with? I know you already talked about how you talk with your husband, and I have been, you know, I I dated a, a couple white guys, you know, two whites ago. It was like, but <laughs> I will say that you know the conversations can be interesting in in this world like with people because like i said i straddle i am around people who are republicans i always can tell they have code words sometimes like they just you know they talk about taxes they talk about stocks they talk about leadership for stocks it's always about like hey you know when the republicans are office we make more money um you know, or I'm getting a facial and I hear, you You know, you just got to have different views. And I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. I can't lose you, facial <laughs> lady. Uh, I think you're a Trumper. Uh, but how do you have, how do you have these conversations? Or do you just bail? Because sometimes I just listen. And sometimes I'll engage. I'll be, I just totally honest. It's going back to what Haj was saying about your community. I mean, I don't, my priority is not having anti-black conversations because I have to have anti-Muslim conversations first. You know what I mean? So like, I, it, it, that, that's not, I would, I'm not equipped to have those kind of conversations because I first have to be talking to folks just about how they're feeling about um, generalization and stereotyping the Muslim community. And my experience growing up, we grew up in a, um, in like the Mojave Desert. It's like a small town in Southern California. It wasn't like sunny beach LA. It was like very much like the desert town of outside of LA. And um, my dad, um, he started the mosque there. And the other Muslims that were there were the black Muslims because all the Indians were Hindu. So when he started, it was like he literally rented this house in a, you know, let's, let's call it like the not great part of the, of the town because that's what they could all collectively afford. And they just rented this small house and that's where they would meet for their Friday prayers. And it was my father and a lot of other, you know, black gentlemen who are black Muslims. So I think that kind of shaped, like, I don't, I don't feel like there was that anti-blackness within like, 
you know, my immediate family because that's who shared the faith with my parents. And so they found that connection there. And, um, you know, my dad, uh, um, he's a veterinarian. And so, you know, he's, he was, he was all his friends were doctors. He's a veterinarian, but like, you know, all, a lot of his employees and everyone that's still with him, it's like all these are great people that he met through the mosque. Um, and so I'm having the conversations I'm having more of as I, you know, entered a new world by partnering with my white American husband is conversations where, you know, I'll never forget he was in a bad mood. And I said, what, what's up? He's like, oh, nothing, nothing. And I'm like, what's, what's wrong? He said, no. He's like, my friends are just being silly on these group texts. And, you know, there was this uh, documentary on the Bikram yoga teacher and how he came out, he was a total like predator. And someone on his, his group text was like, oh, that guy looks like Nora's dad. And, you know, and he made the joke once and like, whatever. And, and then he kept making the joke and then you know, my husband's like, it's not funny. Like it, it's actually, it's actually really like not funny. It's, it's rude. And, um, I felt good about, I was like, you know what? I'm getting through because uh, he's, he's taking that personally and feeling like now you're, now you're talking about my family. And I think it starts in those little doses where someone has to feel a personal connection to then be able to understand it's when it's, larger, it's impacting communities. If they can feel like it's impacting them personally or it's an individual thing, then maybe to Hudge's point, we can get them to think about it from a community perspective and then a systemic perspective. But no one's going to, I believe, cannot make that jump from never having these conversations about anti-blackness or anti-Islam you know, and then suddenly understanding everything from a systemic perspective. And it goes back to, I mean, that's the craziest part is you're talking about all this and I was listening to your episode with, about storytelling. It all goes back to storytelling. Who's telling the story? Who's, you know, who's the narrator? And um, how are we, you know, depicting the main, the main character and how are we eliciting empathy for them? So if we're trying to elicit empathy for our black communities, I mean, you have to get to the personal connection for a white American to feel empathy, um, if at all. So, so I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, um, it's start, we have to start small, but sometimes we don't feel like we have time. We're running out of time. That's what it always feels yeah. like. Yeah. Well, I, I will say like the pandemic was a very um, eye-opening moment where people weren't taking the time. They were going at people. And I kind of liked it. I liked this generation. They weren't pausing. <laughs> they were on TikTok going, why don't I know about this stuff? That gave me hope. When I saw young white kids on TikTok going, I don't understand why I don't know this history. You know, like as a comedian traveling, going international, the view is Americans don't know their history. They don't even get good education, black or white. That's, that's the view. They know about our his, more about our history than we do. There's so many great articles. Okay, the legacy admissions. Uh, I feel like that one's kind of obvious, though. Let's just get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do... Like, I, I, I got to talk about this one because Michael Bloomberg wrote about how Biden and Congress should fix the immigration crisis in our cities. And I think this ties into what, what's going on and sort of also your book and how immigrants can look at what's happened before. But like Mayor Adams, who is a black man, spoke. I don't know if you saw this, but he was just like, this situation will destroy New York City and it caused a rift through like the Democrat world and Republicans were like yeah finally he's saying what we've all been thinking and Democrats were like why would you say that so 
for you, Hajj, when did you hear about I that did. story when he was talking mm-hmm. about? Tell me, what did you think when you heard that? I mean, initial outrage, uh, and then I think just extreme disappointment because it's just even sort of objectively not true. Like you look at the the economic breakdown, they will not destroy it because New York has like a huge surplus and it's going to be fine economically. Culturally, immigrants bring so much and it's the literal history of New York. And I just think it's for me, the revisionist history piece is so strong in the immigration debate because it's like the U.S. has played such a prominent role in both the push factors that push immigrants out of these places and the pull factors for why they want to come here. So I'm like, the fact that we just try to erase all that history and make it seem like they're just people that are trying to leech off of us and it's, you know, this huge crisis and we can't handle it. It is a crisis, but it's not the kind of crisis we think it is. It's not a a crisis for us, poor us as Americans. It's a crisis for them, which we have played a strong role in creating. So especially as a political refugee myself. I'm like, recently my parents showed me my little green card when I first arrived in the United States. It said refugee next to my little baby face. I just feel so profoundly devastated by the way that we treat these human beings who are just trying to survive and save their families. And that's that's it for me. Like on a human level, I, I feel pure disgust. Yes, I agree. It was a disgusting comment. It was... and. I, <laughs> You know, like, it was not mayoral. No. Okay? Like, it's like, you're the leader. You're supposed to help. You're supposed to be, like, like, uh, you know, I hate to give Giuliani any credit at all. But at least on 9-11, he was acting with some type of, like, we're going to get this done. Things are going to turn around. No, something in him was good that day. (laughs) I wouldn't give him credit going forward, but, you know, something kicked in for him. That was good. But but he was acting mayoral. No, like, this is just not, like, where's your plan, man? Like, don't just throw that out there as a statement that this will destroy this city. I mean, some will say it did get something done because Congress, I mean, like, um, Biden has now sent money and and it's woken them up. So in some way, you can argue that it, it worked. But uh, it's just like these are children also that are going to schools right now. And and we were just talking about how children can be kind of mean when they don't know and, and you're new and you're in a school and you're the only one. Like he just fed into the fear. He just like stoked the fear more so. And we already see people in Staten Island saying things like, this is not your land. Go back to where you came. They're saying all these things that you were just talking about in the civil rights movement. We can look at all the behavior is right there. It is mirroring what happened in the war for civil rights. Yep. Yep. Over and over again, right? And uh, Yes. And, and Marina, you're based in New York, right? Are you in yeah. the city? Yeah. So I, we, I mean, we split our time. So we're there half the year in the city. And I remember we would get phone calls from folks like, in, like in-laws and parents, like, how is it going over there? Or reading about the immigration crisis and like, you know, we're seeing the pictures and, you know, I mean, we live like seven or eight blocks from potentially like one of the centers, like one of the hotels that we're not seeing like, so in some ways it's like, the media is telling us it's such a big issue, and it is. It almost is a bad thing when I have to say I'm not seeing it. 
I, I'm, you know, so it's not that it's impacting my daily commute or my life um, in terms of um, getting from point A to point B. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, right? Like, because <laughs> it, it is, it is scary. And and I do, I think for me, the big thing from from Bloomberg's article though was, it's it is about these humans, and we're 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 using. Um, uh, unduly punishing folks and and using them as these pawns in whatever statements need to be made between state politics and you know this mayor and that mayor and putting them on like that that's not fair and there is something getting back to history of you come to this country you come to this country and you're really ready and willing to work for that better life. So there, there you know, I, I was like, okay, at least let's talk of some substance there, right? Let's stop playing these like political games and putting human beings on buses and, and deciding to like give a big F you to someone and laugh about it over dinner um, in your political schemes. But when he was talking about that, I said, yeah, I'm like, you know, thank you for talking about that the main intent of, of a lot of these families and their children, they're coming here for a better life. We know that our parents did that. You know, it's, it's my parents didn't come as political refugees, but just coming here and being ready and willing and able to work um, and, and saying it and, and characterizing the way he did. I, I appreciated that's where we, the start of that article came from. Yeah, I appreciated it too. And I, and because he says that uh, for starters, current federal law prevents asylum seekers who have already been admitted into the United States from immediately working. The process of receiving a work authorization can take a year or longer. In the meantime, how are asylum seekers expected to pay rent and feed themselves and their families? This amounts to state-enforced poverty and vagrancy against people who have shown extraordinary fortitude and grit in journeying here, often at great risk for the opportunity to work and build a better life. And I will say this. I was on the subway. I see it all the time. I take the train. And I see the young, they definitely are asylum seekers, definitely here selling candy now more than ever. This is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that they're, this is the, I guess, a way they can do something to make money with their children, women with their children strapped on their back. Sometimes on the subway, they let, they have one child on their back and one child is like roaming through the car. This is like every week, every day now I see this. And I saw a young kid who, he's just looking at, people on the train while the mother is trying to sell candy and he points to this guy's bottle of water like can I take that mom and I'm like oh my god you know like this is what's heartbreaking is you're not even seeing like a good diet being implemented they have you know it's like this kid is eating candy just candy and and it's a child mm. so how do you look at that and say you don't care or you don't want this mother to have the opportunity for work. It's just heartbreaking. And I, I remember getting off the train and giving her 10 bucks because I just, she came up, she, they always ask me if I want, I, I don't eat sugar, but I don't say that. So that would be obnoxious. <laughs> um, listen, I don't eat sugar. Uh, you know, because I did, I was with a friend one day who was like, you know, I had your mangoes and they were not ripe. I go, are you out of your mind? Are you out of your, do you understand who you're talking to? Like, it is so New York, though. Right. <laughs> it is uh, so New York. 
So I gave her the young, and the kid took the $10 right away. I said, yes, there you go. You have that, you know. But I just say that to say, like, it, I am seeing it. I see it every day. I, I do see this the realness. And I think sometimes when you don't see it, it's not real. But when you see it, it's real, and you want to do something about it. And for him, for the mayor, Mayor Adams to say what he said is despicable. And it should be, we should remember this in the voting that's about to happen in New York. Get them yep. out. I say get them out. Okay. I We do have to leave it there, unfortunately. I have so much more. I would love to talk to both of you ladies like forever because you're so smart and you're both so amazing. And I just really, I thank you for coming on today. It's an honor to have both of you because you're just incredible women. I, I want to have you back. Noor Jahan, tell our listeners where they can find you Amazing. Thank you, Marina. Thanks for having me. Hudge, I feel like the vibes, the energy, besties for yes. life, um, all three of us. Um, you can find me actually on Instagram at Noor Jahan Tort, N O O R J E H A N T O U R T E. So at Noor Jahan Tort, I'm dipping my toe into this world of public speaking and storytelling. And um, with friends like us, you can bring all your identities to the table and you can make some new best friends. I love that. That was lovely. Uh Haj, thank you. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Oh, yes. So um, you can find me on Instagram at Prof Hajaryazdiha. That's P-R-O-S-H-A-J-A-R-Y-A-Z-D-I-H-A. And you can also find me on formerly known as Twitter at Hajaryazdiha. And with friends like us, you can reckon with the past for a more liberatory future for all. Mm? Ooh, wee! I love that. Oh my goodness. And why love should it. they buy your book? Like, tell them, because I, I want to get it. Thank you for circling back. Yes. So, you should buy my book, The Struggle for the People's King How People Transform Politics Transforms. Let me remember the name of my book. How politics transforms the memory of the civil rights movement because it's going to give you a sense of why we are so politically polarized and what we can do about it. Yes. Thank you. Love it. Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And with friends like us, you can have a real conversation with women of color and it'll have some historical reference for you to take into the future. That's good. Check us out. out. Yes.